and gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to get all sorts of wonderful stuff. The swag is now starting to come into the merch, merchandise store. It's very exciting. Uh, they do not have the spaghetti strainer cod piece that I asked them to get, but um, maybe sometime in the fall. Uh, today's episode is brought to you and me and us. Uh, by our friends at Gabby and ExpressVPN. More about them in a little bit. All right, so uh, I wanted to, I'm back in D.C., um, which is just encased in a, a thick soup of essentially homeless dude's sweatpant fog, and I hate it here so much, and I really admit, I'm questioning my sanity leaving Alaska, where it was so pleasant. Uh, but here we are, and since I'm back in the swamp and I'm feeling swampy, I figured I would get my friend and AEI colleague and, um, and founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon, which is why they describe him on TV, uh, to talk a little swampiness and whatnot with me. Um, I guess you don't spelunk in a swamp, right? That's for caves. What would you call a swamp explorer? You dive. You're a swamp diver. Swamp diver? Is that it? Okay. And for people who haven't figured it out yet, I'm, I guess I haven't used his name. I'm talking about uh, none other than Matt Cottonetti. Matt, welcome back to The Remnant. Thanks for having me, Jonah. It's great to be here. It's good to talk to you. I, I, one of the pleasures of working at AI is running into you in the hallways. And since I haven't been in the hallway in months, it's, 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 it's nice to get a chance to catch up. Yeah, I haven't been there either. Although, I, I word on the street is that uh, Robert Doerr, our fearless president, basically goes in every day. No, that's what I hear. Yeah, sort of like the Phantom of the Opera, just sort of <laughs> alone in the shadows, the floor. Yeah, all alone. Um, so uh, where should so we're, as one is wont to do with with you, um, and when I say one, I mean me. Uh, we could talk about conservative eggheadery or rank punditry, and I figured let's start with the rank punditry. Um, uh, because we can, we'll probably turn off more listeners with right. the conservative eggheadery, but the people who are interested in the conservative eggheadery will hang around to the end to get to it. Yeah. We'll so, yeah. Um, so what, what is, how do you think the race is going? <laughs> uh, I think it was, um, the wall street journal columnist, Andy Kessler, who wrote the other day that, um, Trump's presidency may have ended on uh, June 1st, which was the um, the walk to across Lafayette Park to uh, St. John's Church, where he held up the Bible uh, and didn't say anything. And uh, I think the may have uh, maybe, you know, <laughs> giving a little bit too much wiggle room. Um, <laughs> but right now, uh, the facts are these. Uh, Biden has a pretty significant lead on, on Donald Trump. Um, Biden has always led Donald Trump, which I think is kind of the most uh, overwhelming fact when we analyze this race. And um, Biden is um, not as disliked as Hillary Clinton was. It's tougher for Trump to run against Biden uh, than it was four years ago. Um, and so barring any significant 
change in the landscape. I, I mean, I really do think this is Biden's race to lose. Yeah, I mean, is it, part of it, it's not only that Hillary is was much more unpopular than than Biden is, but also among people who disliked both Hillary and Trump mm-hmm. in 2016, the bulk of them went for Trump. The people who both dislike Biden and Trump this time around, the bulk of them are going for Biden. And when you only won the last election by 80,000 votes, you really don't have a lot of, there's not a lot of fat on the bone that you can play with. You have to hold on to everybody who voted for you last time and then add some. And it just doesn't feel like he's been doing, planning on that for three and a half years. The adding part is what's given him trouble. Uh, he's very good at keeping, or has been very good at keeping uh, the, the vote that he had um, in 2016 and his, his core supporters. Um, but he hasn't, he's always, the Trump has always had trouble trying to add to that, and which is what politicians normally do. The problem is that, uh, you know, America is in the midst of uh, economic crisis, social crisis. And the cause of both of those things is a public health crisis, which uh, the public uh, overwhelmingly believes, and I agree with them, uh, the president has not provided effective, decisive, or compassionate leadership in response to this crisis. And until he's able to address that, if he's able to address that, I think um, I think he's really an underdog in this race. Another thing that's happened is I said earlier that you know Biden has always led Trump. Uh, which is true. But the race was also much closer in the key swing states. Um, And that um, competitive edge um, has disappeared. Uh, And so uh, so Biden's national lead has translated into wider leads in the key swing states, um, including states that pretty thought thought to have been pretty good for Trump, like um, North Carolina and Florida. So so there, too, he he is definitely an underdog. And I, like I say, I think, I think events would have to shift radically for him to get um, out of this position. Yeah. So you, I mean, you're not a pollster, but you look at the polls more closely than I do. At least you must've recently, cause I haven't looked at them closely at all because I was in Alaska where it was pleasant. Yeah. Um, but, um, and the last thing you want to do in Alaska is look at polls. But, um, so you said, you said a second ago, and this is purely a factual question. Um, that Trump has been good at holding on to voters and it's just the adding voters that's a problem. And this is a point I've hammered for a long time is that he's not tried to expand his coalition as president. And I agree with that. But do you know, I mean, because like my understanding is that the, the, the Trump campaign people will say that, yes, we've lost ground in the suburbs, but we've added all of these non-traditional uh, rural voters, voters that weren't part of the traditional electorate. Remember the hidden base mm-hmm. or argument that, you know, the Cruz people and then the Trump people did and all that kind of stuff. Do you have any, have you seen any good analysis that tries to score that out about, because look, he's, he, he won the suburbs narrowly last time and he's like down, depending on which poll you look at, somewhere between 15 and 25 points in the suburbs now. So he has lost voters. Um, but they claim that he's also picked up these other voters, you know, including Hispanics and, 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 and sort of surprising voters. Have you seen any concrete evidence that figures what, whether it was a net gain or, or 
where that stands? Well, I think that analysis uh, might have been more on point um, six months ago. Um, but I think what they're saying is that the pool of potential voters uh, for Donald Trump is quite large. And uh, Dave Wasserman uh, Cook, political report, uh, did a study, I think, last year showing that when you actually look at the, and Nate Cohn of the New York Times has also written about this, when you actually look at the numbers of um, uh, potential uh, voters who kind of fit into Trump's base, uh, that is, white voters uh, without college degrees, they're huge and they don't vote. And and so um, for Trump to mobilize this uh, reserve army uh, would, would definitely, I think, uh, confound a lot of the way, uh, a lot of expectations for this race. I don't see much sign that he's been able to do that. Um, and, and I also see sign that uh, of erosion among, among some groups, um, uh, definitely independents. I mean, they've turned against Trump. They've been against Trump for a while. And we forget Trump won independence. Right. And I'm of the mind that the winner of the independence is the winner of the election. That's kind of the way that I look at politics. It's usually the case. Um, uh, there are even some um, seniors, of course, right? senior voters. Um, there's been definite erosion in his support among seniors. He won seniors by quite a bit. And I think that's clear that, again, the seniors have turned against him because of his response to uh, coronavirus. And um, look, I don't think anybody expects Donald Trump to uh, solve this public health crisis. Um, but I do think voters expect more of their president um, in, in this type of situation. Um, kind of su- sustained, calm, um, communic- public, clear public communications, decisive leadership, um, updating the public, and not turning it, everything into kind of a, a reality TV show, and then canceling the show when <laughs> when it kind of blew up in his face over the the um, the bleach uh, yeah. disinfectant comments, right? So. Uh, so this is, I think this is the root of Donald Trump's problem is this virus. Yeah. So the, 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 it seems to me the dead giveaway about that point is that, I mean, I haven't looked again, I haven't looked recently, but for most of the pandemic, the approval rating of governors yeah. was stratospheric, right? Democratic and Republican ones who just sort of did what you're talking about. Right. And behaved like a normal leader you'd expect one to do. And, and even if they made unpopular decisions, they were kind of given the space to do it because there was a consistent messaging thing. And, and Trump didn't get any of that, except he got this brief bump, that first right. press conference he did outside about COVID after he had the disastrous address to the nation. Right. You're like, oh, wow, he's getting a handle on this. This is, right. this is going to be the guy. And... That turned out not. That didn't last good. very long. No. So, do you think this is a bad idea? The um, going back to the we're recording this on Tuesday, so today at five, we're going to have the first glory, the glorious phoenix-like return of the COVID president. No, I, I've heard I've heard from people who've talked to him uh, that he referred to it as the show, you know, and and he loved the fact the ratings were great for the show. Yeah. The ratings were great. Um, uh, until it until it kind of went sour there with the with the disinfectant and shining finding the way to shine the light inside the body. Yeah, always one for me. That was always kind of a moment uh, when he when he asked Doctor Burks, look into that. 
to get the light inside the body. Um, Which, you know, I, it, it's, that's difficult. <laughs> it's a difficult thing to scale up for like 200 million Americans of the sort of alien-like probing with a light to kill the virus. What's that? Remember that um, that traveling show? Uh, I forgot what it was called, but they showed the inside of human bodies and uh-huh. it went everywhere. And it was a big thing about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. That's kind of what made me think like, yeah, how do we get it? I mean, I understand it works as a metaphor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We want to disinfect these people suffering from this virus. As a metaphor, it works very well. I just think for a lot of people hearing it, wasn't they weren't clear whether he was speaking metaphorically or literally. Um, so um, I don't know. They, it, you know. The honest question is, I don't know. I think um, it depends on how long he's able to um, be interested in, 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 in the objective at hand, which is um, kind of doing something to stanch the bleeding by showing that he is on top of or aware of um, this um, regional epidemic uh, in, in the, um, in the sunbelt. And, um, and, and to the extent that he's able to do that, I think it might help if he gets into a fight as is almost inevitable. I mean, it just, it is inevitable that one of the CBS reporters or one of the CNN reporters will ask him a question he does not like, and that will turn into a fight. And if that, then it goes off the rails. Um, no, I don't think it will help him. Yeah. So it's going. It's not going to help him, is what you're saying. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Long way to answer your question. <laughs> yeah, so the first one may go fine. The second one may right. go fine. The question, man. Look, maybe if he does it every week, I think one yeah. problem with the show was that it was going was going on every day and going on for too long. Yeah. Right? He says, okay, I'm going to do one a week and I'm going to limit it to half an hour. Well, then maybe it can help, you know. Um, but but if he I send, like you say, this is, we know enough about Donald Trump to kind of predict his behavior at this point. And I think he's going to want to maximize the attention on him. And so that means a longer briefing more often and thus many more opportunities for things to go off the rails. Yeah. And um, it's, so one of the things I think is kind of fascinating about the times that we're in is that arguably with the exception of Joe Biden, depending on who he picks as his running mate, almost everybody is acting in ways that are not in their political interests. And I mean, it's true of Trump, but it's also been true of Pelosi and Schumer and a lot of these guys. It seems kind of obvious to me that Trump would benefit if he just had Pence run the press conferences and didn't show up, just didn't go. You know, uh, Biden, everyone's making fun of Biden for his, you know, de facto front porch campaign. And he keeps going ahead, you know, rising in the polls. And like, like what, and at some point, yeah, he's got to get out of the basement, but um, it's working for him. And I think less exposure to Trump so that Trump can become an abstraction rather than a reality would be good for Trump. Um, because there are a lot of people who are in favor of Trump in theory, and then he talks about exposing our innards to ultraviolet light, and they're like, ah, damn it. And and so it would be the presidential thing to do, just have Pence run these things and do it, but he won't do it. And so, you know, it's 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 going to go poorly. Yeah, I mean, I, it just we always kind of think back to the f- closing weeks of the 2016 campaign, and that is one example we have of uh, disciplined Trump. Yeah. Um, and uh, he joked about it at the time, but 
it remains a fact that he largely stuck on message. Um, he let the uh, spotlight go to Hillary Clinton. Um, he was helped, of course, by Comey, uh, yeah. himself in the race four days, or the weekend before the election, but, um, or, uh, 10 days before the election for the first letter. But, um, but nonetheless, he, he stuck to the message. He was able to do it. I, I'm, it'd be interesting project to go back and look at what his Twitter feed was like during those final days of the race. I have a sense that it wasn't, you know, he wasn't attacking gold star families, for example, yeah, 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 yeah. anything that kind of blows up into a media controversy and thus reminds people why they don't like Donald Trump right now. Look, it's very possible he'll be able to do the same thing in October. And we just don't know what the world will look like in October. Yeah. Um, it very possible could be worse than it is now, which is hard to conceive of, but I'm a conservative. So you have to, I got my money on this squirrel with the bubonic plague. Yeah, in Colorado. I mean, I mean, <laughs> you hear about every time I open the paper, there's an article about some new virus that's yeah. being spotted <laughs> in China. I said, really? <laughs> Another one? Do we need that? Um, but it's also possible that, you know, by October we've had, uh, there's, we're closer than ever before to a vaccine. It does seem like there are a few vaccines that are showing great promise now. Um, we, there's a possibility that parents, and I speak as a parent, parents are in complete and open revolt against people who are are insisting that schools must be shut down uh, indefinitely. Um, and then, of course, you know, the one thing we don't know is how Biden will perform in a debate against Trump. And right. it is very possible that Trump is able to, um, or Biden just on his own, comes across as someone who's not capable of doing the job. Um, and if that happens, then, you know, it could be a very different race. But like I said, there's a lot of ifs there. Yeah, okay, so I, I want to talk about that for just two seconds. I want to move on to the Senate. But um, I wrote my LA Times column about this this week. Uh, stipulated. I've been making fun of Joe Biden for 25 years, right? I mean, I stipulated. The guy says strange things. Yeah. My standard line is, you never know when he's going to start shouting, get these squirrels off of me. <laughs> um, you know, entire, and he has lost a step. I mean, he just, I, I think that's true. Um, I don't get, unless it's, it's just simply an attempt of sort of like um, Omar on the wire talking crap about Marlo to get him come out on the street and fight him. I don't quite get the strategy um, behind attacking about attacking Biden this way, because the whole point of politics in enormous number of settings is to manage expectations. That's why before debates, you say, you know, Trump would say, you know, Hillary has been doing this for 25 years. This is my first campaign. I don't know what I'm doing. You always want to make it seem like the other guy is much better than you at this kind of stuff and all the rest. And the Trump campaign and Trump himself, including the recent Chris Wallace interview, have basically set the standard at if Joe Biden can successfully do better than a tic-tac-toe chicken in Chinatown, <laughs> he'll be the winner. You know, they're setting the bar so low that he can come across boring. He can say some weird things. But so long as it, like he can breathe on his own, I mean, like Trump said this weekend, Biden doesn't know he's alive. That is setting <laughs> a really low standard for performance. Um, so, like, 
do you think what what, how, what do you make of that that line of attack is just sheer tactics well it's i mean this is the carter uh test right um you know and peter hart was uh, the pollster was talking about this recently uh, when the latest uh, wall street journal poll came out which was you know by 1980 uh the public had really decided that they did not want jimmy carter to be president of the united states they that they had serious doubts about ronald reagan uh, was Ronald Reagan too extreme? Was Ronald Reagan too old? I mean, you know, um, and yet that one debate they had um, was enough. I mean, that was when the race kind of broke it because people tuned in and they saw Reagan and he did not come across as a Barry Goldwater. You know, he did not yeah. come across as someone who was going to uh, spend his presidency trying to dismantle Social Security. He came across... Um, or he didn't come across as someone who was going to launch the missiles on the day that he was inaugurated against the Soviet Union. And he came across as, you know, genial and having a sense of humor and, you know, the oldest man to be elected at that point, but someone who was more or less, someone who was with it, you know. Uh, and so this is the same test that you're right, the Trump campaign is setting up for Biden. Um, the, the, I do think, though, Biden might have more difficulty passing it just based on his um, performances during the primary, you know, because um, mm-hmm. he does, if you compare his debates during the primary with, say, his debates against Paul Ryan and Sarah Palin, he definitely has kind of lost a step, as you put, mm-hmm. you know, and and he's also going to have to deal with Trump needling him and interrupting him. And he's also going to have to deal with Trump devoting at least 40 percent of his words about Hunter. And if, if one thing we have learned is that Biden has really gets ticked off if you're asked about Hunter. Yeah. And he does never really had a good answer, uh, about Hunter's Biden's business career. So, so I I do think that he, he is vulnerable in a debate, which is one reason why I think Thomas Friedman, you know, when you were in Alaska, I don't know if you saw this, but Thomas Friedman floated the idea that Biden should refuse to debate. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I, I think the Biden campaign might be a little bit worried about about a Trump debate. Um, that's all. I know that's that, that's entirely fair. I mean, the the baiting him. Stop, I think you're absolutely right about the, in the actual debates. Biden could go, you know, dog face pony soldier on Trump pretty weirdly. And <laughs> People might just say, well, what's yeah. And but. So they might, it might work out for Biden. I mean, I just, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think it it depends what, what is the thing that causes Biden to lose it? If it's attacking his son, he's got a ready-made narrative saying, look, it's my family, blah, 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 blah. Um, but it's, it's going to be the kind of debate that in almost any other context of life, you would expect the orderlies at the home to come and make them both go back to their rooms. You know? um, all right. So qu- quickly, before we get to the, the important stuff of, of conservative eggheadery, um, uh, do you think the Republicans are going to hold on to the Senate? Uh, if they lose, if, if Trump loses, uh, I don't think the Republicans will hold on to the Senate. I mean, what one we saw really in 2016, um, the oh, every Senate race went the way of the the presidential. So you know, um, which is increasingly common. Increasingly, right? Yeah, um, 
Carlin did that thing for AI about yeah. this. Um, it was pretty impressive. I think th this may have been like how pr it really was perfectly aligned um, in 2016. And so I would expect that to continue uh, in 2020. And so if, if Biden wins, um, especially if Biden wins by, you know, a, a margin equal to or larger, greater than Obama's in 2008, which was the highest margin um, in 30 years. And it was only three, about four points. It was, it was less or, you know, Biden, if Biden's able to pull something like that off, um, yeah, then certainly this, I think the Senate is, is gone. Um, but you know, I always believe no one actually ever controls the Senate. Um, and, and so, uh, so, you know, Biden would be going into office, um, with a pretty narrow Senate majority. Um, and one that I, you know, I think there'll be a lot of cross currents within the, that Senate majority over questions like, getting rid of the legislative filibuster, for example. So it's not, it's not as if Biden wins and even if the Democrats take the Senate, we're not staring down four years of, you know, of Antifa rule, which is, I think, <laughs> I think the message from a lot of uh, conservatives these days. I, I just disagree with that. Yeah. I mean, I, the catastrophizing of everything yeah. uh, is driving me nuts. Um, uh, this morning, James Woods, had this tweet showing a bunch of African-American women, women having a street brawl. And his response, his comment was vote for Trump in 2020, like your life depended on it. Yeah. And I just find that kind of, it, that kind of like stuff, which is everywhere these days. I'm trying not to get too far afield on this is, is a sign of desperation. Um, but when you talk to like the donor types um, and they're trying to give themselves permission structure to say a Trump loss would be a catastrophe, blah, 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 blah. The things they talk about are like what you're saying about getting rid of the legislative filibuster. Yeah. And I just can't decide. I mean, first of all, I just think it's kind of unknowable at this point. I think Biden's instincts are against getting rid of it. Um, but, and people, and he's hinted that he, that he might favor getting rid of it if he can't get his stuff through or whatever. But what people kind of leave out is, is like Biden can't snap his fingers and make it go away. Right. You actually need enough democratic votes at the beginning of the session. Right. Cause it, you can only do it when you're setting the rules at the beginning of the session. Right. You can't do it in the middle of the year or anything. I think that's how it works. I'm, I'm not, yeah, I don't know. You, yeah. I, I, I think it's like when you're setting the rules for that session of Congress, you can change what the criteria is for the filibuster. I could be wrong about that. Um, yeah. That's easy enough to check. And but, I don't think they want to have, honestly, I don't know, understand why Biden would want to have that fight upon, take, upon taking office because he has, I mean, there, the demands on Biden's limited attention span, yeah. <laughs> so we know, will be, incredible incredible i mean not only will he have to uh deal with the coronavirus which i don't think will be eradicated by january he's going to have his economic plan that he's going to try to get through um which is usually the thing that most first-term presidents get um and we, we always leave this out of the discussion um you know peter Beiner complained but i thought it was a very important piece he was complaining in the atlantic um, some time ago, 
about how the one thing Biden has not changed or moved left on is foreign policy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, that is the most probably the most important, important thing to Biden. Um, his two big issue sets are foreign policy and then kind of a law, you know, and, and yeah. uh, uh, kind of um, judges and stuff like that. So I think he's going to remember the Obama apology tour. You know, I mean, I think Biden's is going to make that look <laughs> like a, kind of a warm up act. Um, so I, I just don't understand, given all of these things that he's going to be dealing with in the first quarter of his presidency, why they'd want to have this huge showdown over the legislative filibuster. Um, but you know what? Uh, I always find a way to be surprised. Yeah. I mean, I also, you have, I mean, the people who would decide whether you can get rid of, rid of the filibuster would be like Joe Manchin. Right. And Kristen Cinema. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, um, people, I just, uh, I, I just think it would be kind of the, the within the Democratic caucus, like you say, there's there's kind of people who are very skeptical. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it'll be tough going. I, I, I personally think that the far more likely outcome of a Biden presidency, which I agree is the more likely of the two scenarios right now. Is that he is LBJ, right? And I mean, LBJ at the end of his presidency, not at the beginning. <laughs> um, and that uh, the left is going to try and eat him alive and roll him. And um, this idea that he is going to be the dashboard saint for Antifa or Black Lives Matter, I just don't, I don't think is right. And, and so instead, they're going to try to eat him alive. And it'll be after his first year, a pretty dysfunctional presidency. Um, but who knows? I mean, uh, there's still a lot of stuff. I mean, from a conservative perspective, it's, it's, it's a difficult one to score out. I mean, I, I, I'm of the school. I'm, um, that Donald Trump has done more damage to the long-term health of conservatism than, um, and then help for it. And, um, and that a Biden presidency could in fact be, a healthy thing for conservatism in the same way that Obama gave us the tea parties and Trump gave us black lives matter. Um, this is anti, we need more Hegelian dialectic in our analysis of how these things work. Um, but you know, there's a lot of low hanging fruit that Biden will get taken care of that, you know, will bother a lot of us and you know, who knows what he'll do with Obamacare and health insurance. And, um, and I think that whatever he does, on things like health insurance, it's really important to get the best policy possible. And that's why I want to talk about Gabby. We're all looking for ways to save money, especially now. When's the last time you looked at how much you're spending every month on car insurance, on homeowners insurance? Now's the time to check out Gabby and see about getting a lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples-to-apples -apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers. Just link your current insurance account, and in about two minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. That's what I did, and you know, one of the benefits was I found out I actually have really good coverage. But most Gabby customers save, on average, about $825 a year. And if they can't find you savings like that, they'll let you know so you can relax knowing that you have the best rate out there. And they'll never sell your info, 
So no annoying spam or robocalls. They also don't abuse your info. It's almost like you're using ExpressVPN when you're shopping with them. Um, so you won't have ads for this stuff following you around all over the place. More about ExpressVPN in a bit. Anyway, it's totally free to check your rate. There's no obligation. It takes two minutes right now to see how much you can save on your car and homeowner's insurance. Just go to Gabby, that's G-A-B-I dot com slash remnant. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash remnant. Gabby dot com slash remnant. We thank Gabby for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant, which is also your promo code. Okay, so as I was saying just a second ago, I, I think Trump has been more damaging to to conservatism than he's been helpful to it in all sorts of ways. I'm sort of a Ross Douthat camp on that stuff. Um, and you're free to respond to that or just let that one sail over the plate. Um, but um, uh, you've been spending an inordinate amount of time doing something which I think violates many of the ethical uh, codes of our tribe, which is You've been writing a book on spec, <laughs> um, and uh, but I salute you for it. And uh, so you've been you've been deep in the weeds of conservatism stuff, conservative stuff for a long time now. Um, what is your um, assessment about where conservatism is and what it will look like in twenty twenty one or twenty twenty five, depending on what happens with Trump? Well, I think I'm, I'm getting to the point in my book where I kind of have to reach conclusions. Um, and they're slowly coming. Um, one of them is is that uh, there there have there's not one conservative movement in America. There's been I I count four, mm-hmm. and um, we're in the fourth one now. And what what's in, interesting about it is that it's uh, different in uh, character than earlier uh, conservatisms or rights in America. It's very nationalistic and it's very populist, um, and it does not have the um, the traditional kind of what we, when many people think of conservatism or national review or William F. Buckley, uh, they're really thinking of a anti-statist anti-communist conservatism. That's not really what we have today. Um, uh, it's attitude for the state is, is different than Buckley's. Um, it's happy, it's happy to use state power, uh, as long as it, the state is helping the right people or, um, or inf- inflected with conservative values. And on foreign policy, I mean, it's not, it's, it's nationalistic and slash unilateralist. It's not, doesn't have kind of this uh, defining paradigm of anti-communism any longer. Um, I don't think Trump's defeat will change that. Um, I think, I think this current right has been long, long in the making, 30 years, my lifetime. Um, And so I don't know if Trump is defeated, whether that will delegitimize it and all of a sudden it's back to anti-statism, anti-com- anti-communism, or the way that kind of the, 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 th- the third one, um, the third right would be, I, I kind of call it pro-market, pro-democracy, right? Um, yeah, so walk me through that. What are, the, what are the four great awakenings of conservatism? Well, the first one was, um, uh, the, the first, if at the beginning, you know, kind of, I basically start with the um, the progressive era and what the right was like then. And um, up until um, basically the Second World War, um, you know, the right was uh, anti-statist. 
but also um, anti-interventionist, non-interventionist. And then um, the right that replaced it was Buckley's right. So I mentioned anti-status, but anti-communist, willing to accept a large defense establishment in order to prosecute the war on communism. And I think the the right um, shifted with Reagan's election, really, um, was a huge change um, and into a more, um, like I say, pro-market. It wasn't necessarily anti-statist because it was in charge of the state, but it became very pro-market and also pro-democracy. So missionary, evangelistic in a way, right? And and that, I think, kind of persisted up until uh, the Iraq War, the second Iraq War. And now that, the fissure there kind of produced the fourth right, which is the uh, nationalist populist right. So um, I think a Trump defeat would lead to, you know, a, a real uh, battle for within the American right. Um, but I, I think that the tendency at the moment is still, the, the you know, character of the right is still, even after Trump defeat, would remain nationalist and pop, populist. So... I mean, I would love to talk to you about the progressive era, right? Because it's it's a squirrely and slippery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm making these large generalizations. But yeah. I've been told that's what you have to do in an introduction to a book. So you know, uh, that's, no, that's all fair. I mean, and and as 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 you know, this podcast is called The Remnant, which I get from Albert J. Nock, who right. is one of those guys. Um, although I have to admit, I mean, he was definitely a cosmopolitan, um, and but he was, I actually don't know much about his foreign policy now that I think about it. Maybe oh, I, he was, he was, he was an America first or avant the lettering. I mean, he was against the war. He was, he was against World War One and World War Two. Nock and Mencken were very, you know, pro-German. Um, yeah, no, I know, I know Mencken was, um, but he was, um, but Nock, but, but Nock's, when you say he was America first, America first or avant the I mean, Nock was also very cosmopolitan in the in the in the you know maybe not in the, in the Diogenes sense but in the g- generic sense that he you know he famously said that he doesn't see why it should you know w- why it wouldn't be better to live in Belgium than in the United States which is the which is like fighting words for my generation of conservatives but um, and so it's you don't get a large sense of nationalism in his in his writings, even if he is anti-interventionist. Yeah. And like I said, I don't think that that's necessarily what, I don't think that their their non-interventionism was nationalistic in a Uh way. It was subscribing to that, you know, that tradition of American foreign policy of of basically non-entanglement with, with Europe in particular. Right. uh, Right. We need to, America needs to stay away from conflicts in Europe. I mean, that originates in George Washington's farewell address. And, and I think Mencken knock um, the right at that time um, was very much of that persuasion, and that carried on through, you know, Robert Taft and sure, um, yeah, and, and Lindbergh to you know, as, as, yeah, and, and Lindbergh's a complicated, yeah, you no, know, he's not you know conservative intellect, intellect, but they were all they're all the the argument throughout was stay away from Europe, stay away from Europe. Our destiny, America's destiny, is to the um, to our west or the far east. Yeah. And and that's where we have to be. And, we, you know, we forget you know, Buckley, William F. Buckley's 
boat when he was a kid, they named it Splendid Isolation. You know, <laughs> yeah. they didn't want to get. He was he was definitely a non-interventionist at that time. I wonder he, he he gave money at a very early age to the American First Committee, and you know, it's, it's worth pointing out just so people understand, you know, that that the the concept of America First and non-interventionism. You have to look at it, and I'm sure you agree with this. I mean, it depends on when you're invoking these ideas. A lot of this stuff took on a very bad odor retroactively because of the Holocaust and World War II. But if the only war you had known was World War I, which was a spectacularly stupid war, and um, uh, which had done so much damage for so little gain, um, uh, you could kind of understand why you would be a non-interventionist, you know, and you can't bl- you can't hold people to account for stuff that hadn't happened yet. And so, uh, you know, this is one of my problems with the way Trump used America First is that he had no idea of any of the history of it because America First got a lot uglier later on once he started knowing what was happening to Jews and what you what you know, and the case for World War II was much more, which was much different than the case for World War One, but. Um, Anyway, so uh, you're free to disagree with that if you like, but um, uh, the um, so the but the question I have for you is so in all of these other conservatisms and your schema of this, um, which I will reserve final judgment on when I see the book, um, is uh, I can't recall a time when conservative self-described conservatives had uh basically turned on uh classical liberalism the way they are right now at least some of them are right now you know um connor friedersdorf did this list of like conservatives you should read on twitter which i thought was a really unremarkable kind of thing given connor's perspective on things and a bunch of people freaked out about it which was very strange and saying these guys aren't conservatives including me and bunch of other people um you know and patrick deneen who i'm you know in a friendly competition with these days and on various fronts uh you know his talking about the founding and lockeanism and classical liberalism uh it feels and the idea that you're not a real conservative if you call yourself a classical liberal you're not a real conservative if you defend what he calls the lockean elements of of the founding, uh, according to these guys, George Will is not a conservative, right. which would be strange if you had said that even five minutes ago in American life. Um, can you recall a time where this this kind of argument, with the exception of maybe some cranks like Marie Rothbard, was going on? Well, um, uh, your mention of, of 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 Rothbard, though I think he would disagree with with kind of this new post liberal um, right. Um, uh, one of the other conclusions uh, that I've reached as I come to the end of writing this draft um, is that uh, debates within the American right are recurring. And um, this debate over the nature of the American founding and whether it's something that uh, conservatives should support uh, is long running. Um, mm-hmm. And you can go back, uh, the attitudes that uh, expressed by post liberals. Um, are very similar to attitudes from the Southern agrarians. Um, they, are, they were represented in many ways by the uh, Brent Bozell and Triumph uh, uh, magazine. 
you can see these debates between um, critics of America and the Constitution and uh, Frank Meyer early on. And my favorite story is one battle he had. So he, you know, he was best. They were very close friends. Uh, Meyer and Bozell were very close friends, despite this yeah. major um, disagreement. A leading Wilmore Kendall joked once that an emergency phone call between Meyer and Brent Bozell was a call between Meyer and Brent Bozell that interrupted another call between Meyer. And <laughs> but um, he was not so friendly with another man who made the same arguments uh, against the American founding, which is the um, political scientist D- Donald Atwell Zoll, but later in the 60s. And but it's the same thing. And in one of this in this debate, the Zoll debate in 1969, 1970, uh, Meyer says, you know, you, what you're saying, Zoll, about the importance of order and, you know, instilling um, order and, you know, is, is uh, it, you know, interrupting the constitutional framework in order to create order in, in response to the chaos of the late 1960s. That's not that's not American. And Zoll writes back, goes. Guilty as charged, right? And he goes on. He says, "I don't, I don't like America." You know, um, uh, the postscript to Zoll, which I found out while researching the book, is uh, he he was at the time of the debate. He was a political scientist at the University of Saskatchewan. Yeah, he, he was fired uh, because it turns out that he had forged uh, his uh, his academic career. He he didn't have a PhD, so he was fired. And then he took up, and I you can look at this up. He became an elephant trainer. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing past. Anyway, so that debate was happening in 6970. You get into it again with um, the paleo-neo debates in the 1980s and 90s, where it's subsection of the paleo-conservatives turn against, you know, this idea of the, not only do they turn against Lincoln, which which was a big bugaboo, or, and the proposition that all men are created equal, but then that some of them then turn up onto the founding itself. You know, there's something wrong with um, the Constitution, or, or uh, and certainly wrong with certain ideas behind the Constitution. Uh, so I, I look at the post-liberal debate today, and I'm not that surprised. I, I, I would say one thing is how widespread it is, in the sense yeah. that younger conservatives, or pe- younger people who find themselves on the right, are much more attracted to this uh, than they may have been in, in generations past. Um, and I think there's a variety of reasons for that, but that would be the main difference. This argument over whether America is is worthy of the support of the right is, I think, coeval, coterminous with an American right itself because of the nature of the American right, which is we're the only right uh, that is a dissident movement. Mm-hmm. We're the only right in the world. You know, and so a lot of these folks, when they look to their models, uh, they're looking at the European right. And the the European right was always the force of stability and order because it was working in defense of historically formed institutions like the church, like the throne, like like the aristocracy. Well, our historically formed institutions that conservatives like me defend are fundamentally liberal ones. Mm-hmm. And and that is just a paradox that you cannot escape uh, in America in the United States of America, and that turns off people, some people on the right. And once they figure out that out, then it's not too hard for them to turn against the founding itself because they, 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 they 
they can't, you know, they are, they want to support something that antedates the founding. Um, and, you know, this is an intellectually interesting uh, tradition um, lead has led to very eloquent writing. Um, but it's, I think it's a non-starter in American politics. Um, and I also do think that sometimes it can lead to, to places that I just don't want to go, you know? Yeah. I mean, um, you're right about, I mean, I've mentioned it before the, the, the triumph stuff with Bozell in the seventies or it was the seventies, right? Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was founded, um, in, in the mid sixties and then petered off uh, as his, um, his mental health uh, deteriorated, but yeah, it ended in the seventies. But I didn't remember, you know, I mean, maybe it's because the palios were so much more marginal back when a lot of those fights were going on. It always seemed to me, I mean, you, you make a very good point about the Southern agrarians, which I wasn't thinking of and the traditions that they were kind of grab onto. But in my generic sort of speaking in a broad generalization, my experience in the past has always been that most of the fights among conservatives was over whose brand of conservatism was laying claim to the more authentic spirit of the founding, right? And and so you could you could take a jab at it by going against the Jaffa Lincoln stuff and saying, well, he's he was turning the founding into something that it wasn't really about, and blah 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 blah. But this point that you make about that conservatives being a dissident movement, I mean, this is um something I've mentioned a bunch of times here is. I think one of the best essays ever written about conservatism was the Samuel Huntington, what, 1955, something like that, uh, conservatism as an ideology. And he makes a very similar point to what you're making, right? He says that America is, that first of all, conservatism, qua conservatism, uh, the only similar philosophical movement to it is radicalism in the sense that they are, um, the only two political philosophies that are entirely contextual, right? I mean, like what a conservative wants to conserve in one place is going to be very different than what a conservative wants to conserve in another place. And I think it's Hugh Cecil has this line that before the Protestant Reformation, it's silly to talk about conservatism and politics in Europe because all there was was conservatism, right? You know, you had the aristocracy in the church and they were defending their institutions and they ran them. And, and that was the only argument that was around. And in America, you know, we're, you know, to quote Bill Murray and Stripes, you know, we're not Watusis. We're, you know, we do things a little differently. Um, but so it's, so it's an interesting point, which I hadn't really thought about in this way, is that if you are dispositionally conservative, and what I mean by that is if you um, dislike change, but you also, uh, you don't need to be an authoritarian, but you like authority, you like order more than freedom and all these kinds of things. Um, a lot of the rhetoric of American conservatism does not scratch that itch enough for you, right? And then you have to look to something other than the American founding to satisfy you. Um, I just, you know, you know, God bless some of the post-liberal Catholic guys, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the Catholic church, you know, for the most part, but I don't see how that is going to work for an American political movement. Uh, neither, neither do I. I mean, I think they would, they would reject the assumption that somehow it has to work as a political movement. And 
that they often say, you know, well, the Bolsheviks weren't really a mass political movement and they ended up being in charge, you know. Um, so uh, and someone and someone expressly made that analogy. I saw it on Twitter somewhere. Yeah, that's great. In response to the, you know, uh, the common good constitutionalism argument of Adrian Vermeule, and people were like, no one's ever going to support this in American politics. And I saw some Twitter going, well, world politics has been determined by energized minorities, not mass um, movements. There is something to that argument. Um, I just even that stipulated, I don't see America turning into a confessional state anytime soon um what else has there ever been a case where energized minorities with the exception maybe of christianity which is, goes back a ways in ancient rome has there ever been an example of of a energized minority that has won a political contest without violence i mean it's 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 i mean i guess the civil rights movement maybe but i mean like when you invoke the Bolsheviks, you are not invoking um, right. Christianity or the civil rights movement. Well, I guess the example would be, um, uh, and you know this is in your work on fascism, but I think it would be in the Nazi. The, the Nazis would be the one that, yeah, you know, it was not a majority. I don't think they were a majority, but they, when they got into power, there was enough that they were able to get into power legally. Um, yeah, again, just invoking Bolsheviks and Nazis <laughs> <laughs> as, as the proof of concept is that's just a radical, that's the radical style. I mean, <laughs> that's the, you know, um, uh, I, I'm just saying um, this is this is how I read them when, when yeah, yeah, they yeah. okay. make their arguments. Um, so that is um, I think that, you know, that's a tendency on the right now that is, um, I think, um, spurred by changes in technology. Um, and social media and the ability of like-minded uh, people to connect and to form uh, to form cliques uh, outside um, uh, what you know the, the normal parameters of, of of or not normal but the traditional parameters of discourse, which was you know there was very few platforms and mm-hmm. uh, and so that's no longer the case, and so th- these ideas can spread and more radical ideas tend to attract, um, the young. Um, and also, you know, there, this is something I was just writing about, uh, recently from my book and about kind of the, um, well, here's another example about turning against the founding, uh, the end of democracy symposium in, in the first things in yeah, 19, yeah, yeah. 1996. Again, that's a recurring thing. And actually at the time, uh, Ramesh Panuru, our, our friend and colleague wrote an interesting piece, uh, for national review where he said, you know, if there would be a positive outcome to the end of democracy, when it, just for people who aren't familiar with it, this was a symposium in the pages of First Things, where the founder of First Things, Richard John Niehaus, who is not, you know, he was not a rad trad. I think right. some people who are t- attempting to turn him into one, having done my work on this research. It's one of the four principles in the neocon books. Yeah, I mean, yeah, a couple he, he was a yeah. Catholic neoconservative like Michael Novak. Um, yeah. Uh, of course, he started out as a Protestant, um, as a Lutheran neoconservative, but then converted to Catholicism in 1990. Nonetheless, you know, the symposium in 1996 raised the question after several judicial decisions on um, on uh, gay rights and on abortion, whether it, whether the legitimacy of the regime was in question. And this spawned a huge debate on the right. Uh, several people resigned from the First Things uh, editorial board um, as, as a result. 
but you can kind of see it there and the, uh, this kind of uh, growing hostility to the constitutional order and if the constitutional order is resulting in social changes that are um, profoundly disturbing to, um, uh, to to religious believers or certain um, you know conservative religious believers, orthodox religious believers, small o. Um, Ramesh pointed out that the one positive outcome might be for conservative elites and for Republicans to pay closer attention to the demands of social conservatives within the coalition. That advice went unheeded, <laughs> you know, and and since then, in the in the in the um, twenty almost you know almost a quarter century since, um, I think social conservatives more and more have become. Uh, more willing to uh, to entertain the possibility that the the rules of the game, as Sorab Amuri put it, um, uh, put them at a fundamental disadvantage. Of course, you know that might have been the purpose of the rules of the game, uh, is what Walter Burns might have said in response. You know, but um, but that but that is, I think, is is one reason for for, for kind of the growing. Um, attraction of this uh, of these ideas among among some on the, uh, on the on the right yeah i mean not to be a broken record on this i would ha- i have i have a lot of sympathy for the critiques that that Saurabh and Deneen and others point about contemporary society and you know the atomization and enemy of you know capitalism and markets and um and all the rest and um what bothers me the most, is, well, I shouldn't say the most, but, but the solutions I find, the proposed solutions I find sort of the cure worse than disease to, to one extent or another. But also, I, I just don't understand why they can't aim lower. You know, I mean, let's have a post-liberal Catholic integralist state in Rhode Island and, you know, and see how that goes. You know, all these people, I mean, it's like you read Deneen and all these people, they, they talk about how, in a very Rousseauian turn, that, that you know, he, he has this line in his, in his book where he says, um, people talk about the liberation of women, but what they're really being liberated to do is, a, a, is to work in the capitalist marketplace, which is just a greater form of bondage, and which is very Rousseauian, right? And it's like everywhere... Man is born free and everywhere is in chains, right? And it's Marxist. It's, it's, it's very Marxist too, but there's a lot of, you know, that's Deneen's uh, teacher is Carrie McWilliams was, yeah. was a Marxist. Yeah. And there's, and it comes through from time yeah. to time. And, um, uh, I remember, I mean, again, I like Patrick and he didn't remember this. I tried to remind him about this in the, in the early two thousands, he accused me of lying about my, about, about, about deliberately lying and, 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 uh, distorting uh the facts because i was literally in the pocket of big oil and um it was only when i said that this accusation of bad faith is really shabby and he retracted the idea that i was on the take and instead just thought i was doing it as on the volunteer basis but um uh the the and again i I actually do like like patrick and um and i think a lot of this book is really interesting and, and all the rest but the this this idea that one has no ability to exit the existing capitalist order um, is just not true. 
you know, the Amish do it, and he likes the Amish. Lots of other people can do it. They just don't want to do it because it turns out they like good dentistry and stuffed crust pizza and uh, air conditioning and all of these kinds of things. And the response from a lot of the sort of Beninians is, well, they shouldn't like that stuff, and therefore we're going to have to deprive everybody of it so that they can live a more authentic, true conservative life. And I just find that kind of stuff utterly unpersuasive. And it border, in terms of its political saleability, so much, I mean, like you mentioned the first things thing. I was at AI when that went down, you know, I mean, that was like a big deal to like literally dozens of us. This is my book. I think it's going to be a big deal to 20 people. Yeah. yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, I, it could. That debate is going to be interested in this book because it's just filled with things like that. But um, and but that's the thing is like the wider world of conservatism doesn't know about any of this stuff um, very much or at any great level. And I'm I, this is not a criticism of normal people. It's just a recognition of reality. Um, and and so there's there becomes this. It kind of becomes like. Dungeons and Dragons, which I understand the appeal greatly of Dungeons and Dragons. I love the whole idea of it, or like, you know, reenacting, you know, some ancient battle or dressing up for a Klingon wedding. It's all interesting and fun, and you can get really into it. But its its political relevance in the real world, I think, is remarkably limited. Um, um, There's something of a paradox there because you know. Um, like I said, I'm not sure that this, the post-liberals are, are really care all that much about being politically successful. On the other hand, the writing is very similar to a lot of writing on the right um, over the past century, which has been fixated on politics. Right? Yeah. There's a real weakness to, this, to the conservative movement. Uh, it was that it was, um, a, it was a very narrow, um, politically directed movement. It, um, and, you know, there are re- sound reasons for that. Um, but it very quickly kind of became, I think, captured by politics um, and, uh, and, and kind of thought that it was through politics that uh, great changes, not only to public policy, which were affected, but to American society and culture itself could be, could be wrought. And when that didn't happen, and it was really toward the end of the Reagan presidency when it dawned on certain people on the right. And then again, throughout the 90s, it kept, it kept people on the right kept running up against this, that you can't actually change culture through politics. Um, now, I know people will disagree with that statement that I just made. Uh, and they'll say, well, what about the courts and all that? Nonetheless, it, it, the right was unable to. Maybe I'll frame it that way. The right was unable to change the culture through politics. And so, and yet not, not, the right never kind of said, oh, well, we need to become a broad-based mass movement then of, you know, and kind of go into society and like start up, um, you know, NGOs and such. And there are people on the right who have done that, you know, um, and, and have made real change. But the actual movement itself um, has always, I think, since 1964, been very focused on, well, the way we're going to change America is by winning elections. And I think that did produce great changes in America, um, but it, not the changes that a, a lot on the a, a, a people on the right were after, you know. Um, so, and I, it, so it's kind of odd then that 
here's an opportunity if you are a post-liberal to to kind of go and oh let's say okay well let's start um organizing people you know and and there's some some of this in you know evangelism or something there is some of that i think but for the the people in our world of um writers and thinkers um it's still well this is why somehow it all comes down well this is the reason to support trump you know which is Mm -hmm. it kind of odd on its face um but but this is again i think a recurrent feature of the of the american right which is just well it's all going to come down to politics you know um when in fact life is much more complicated um you know if if you were going to start a real you know evangelist social conservative movement um sort of going back to the parallel of christians in ancient rome one of the things that would be crucial to it, other than the evangelizing spirit, would be something like ExpressVPN. You think I'm joking about evangelists needing to be um, uh, maintaining their anonymity in the digital catacombs of the 21st century, but I'm actually kind of serious. Um, and I know a lot of you are just thinking you can probably just use incognito mode. Well, you can't. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use um, or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited, including that one, if you know what I mean. That's why even when you're at home, you should never go online without using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon or Comcast or any other cable or internet provider. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, you don't even realize you have ExpressVPN on. It just runs seamlessly in the background and is so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button and you are protected. ExpressVPN is available on all of your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you not to be using it. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit the exclusive link for Remnant listeners at expressvpn.com slash remnant. And you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash remnant. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash remnant. Expressvpn.com slash remnant to learn more. We thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. And so, look, I think this is a really important and interesting point. And as you know, one of my great gripes about the conservative movement in the last few years, and one of the reasons why I wanted to start the, the dispatch, um, is I think too many conservatives have internalized the idea that conservatism is really about being a political consultant. Um, uh, and that uh, making conservative arguments is great and important, and you can do that between elections about policy or culture or whatever, but every four years or every two years, they all have to be bent towards, and that's why you got to vote Republican, or here's what the Republicans need to do to blah, 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 blah. And for some people, they can keep 
the you know the they can keep the chocolate out of the peanut butter and the peanut butter out of the chocolate and they can do, put on the different hats but then for other people i just think that they internalize this idea that being a conservative intellectual is also being a sort of advisor to republicans and that can be a huge problem right i mean and um and i don't it would be really interesting to know what it would look like and when it would happen if the conservative movement decided to make the decision to focus on culture rather than politics right but then i guess it would have been a religious awakening like the fifth awakening and it wouldn't have been expressly political anyway yeah i mean you know i mean so i think we can look at say the new the religious new right and um and uh figures like falwell the creation of the moral majority at the end of the 1970s um phyllis schlafly phyllis schlafly's anti-era campaign um those are those were grassroots movements so i'm not i'm not um i don't want to dispel the idea that it's there's not some you know ma uh there haven't been mass movements um but they were very political right i mean they were about they're not electric. cultural they're not cultural ones necessarily i mean they, um and so uh you know and there's never been like a um a conservative labor movement yeah which is odd considering that one reason why conservatives were successful politically was starting in the late 60s a lot of union guys said yeah i'm with you I and mean, there's a new book out um uh the hard hat riot i think it's called by the journalist david paul kuhn which is exactly about this movement among um working class typically catholic ethnic uh, voters uh, toward the right because they were being repelled uh, by cultural liberalism. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what that would look like necessarily. Uh, like I say, I think there are you know you can look at an example like Chuck Colson. You know, he started prison ministry. He he you know all the efforts of Robert Woodson to work in inner cities um, and to um, so there there are there are there is a model for this type of engagement with society but that typically hasn't been the focus of a lot of um uh work on the right mainly because um you know you said oh well there's this tendency to think that a conservative intellectual is an advisor to presidents well they have been they're the you know, <laughs> so starting starting with nixon um irving crystal was invited to meet nixon in 1970 um at pat buchanan's urging actually um, and since then, um, uh, you know, uh, there have been conservative intellectuals, uh, conservative elites have found themselves in the place of being, you know, kind of outside, out, you know, consultants or not, or commentators, strategists, advisors, uh, to Republican politicians. Now that ended in 2016. And so you have this weird, um, situation where, um, the the people who the people who are serving that role were not the ones doing it for 30 years prior there it's a new elite um that is that is just very different and much more populist and nationalistic uh than the earlier conservative ones so yeah again i, I should be clear about this i'm i'm a big believer in that all poisons are determined by the dose right and so i don't really mind that uh 
Irving talked to Nixon or that, um, what's his name, Goldwyn. Um, yeah, Bob Goldwyn. Yeah, Bob Goldwyn was tight with, with Jerry Ford, right? You know, I mean, that's all fine. And, and you can go back to Arthur Schlesinger. I mean, there's a role for public intellectuals and all of that kind of stuff. My point is, it's a, the, the difference in degree has become a difference in kind in the sense that big chunks of the conservative movement are kind of like, you know, like the, the point back in the day um, of the conservative movement, starting with sort of Buckley and Goldwater and those guys to make the Republican Party into a conservative party was to use the Republican Party to influence, to make the center of gravity in American life move rightward, or at least stay from, prevent it from moving leftward. And, um, and my point isn't that that was necessarily a bad thing. My point is, is that at some point, because of the incentive structures and the changes in social media and, and a thousand other things that, you know, are nobody's expressed fault, a lot of the conservative movement are like the dogs that caught the car and, and they don't know how to drive, right? And so they're, or to put it a different way, you know the old saying about how if you're uh, uh, if you owe the bank a thousand dollars, you've got a huge problem. If you owe the bank a million dollars, the bank has a huge problem, right? The, there's just something to that about how the conservative movement, again, I think in part because of the incentive structure and the way the business of this stuff works, um, it got to the point where I'm, I, I don't mean intellectuals who go and have coffee with the president of the United States. I'm talking about your average pundit on Fox, your average town hall, uh, you know, columnist or talk radio person. They're they're a big chunk of their job is to simply talk about conservatism as a way of getting Republicans elected, rather than some larger goal. Yeah, well, I, I think I would just amend that one one thing. It's a certain type of Republican. Uh, yes, because the figures that you're referring to, uh, they're not the biggest fans of a lot of Republicans uh, or a lot of conservatives. It's a, um, and so this is what I mean when I say that the the current right is this populist nationalist thing. I mean that that is that's what the um, the structure that that came into place. It, you know, one conclusion, another conclusion. I came to is everyone was there was a big debate at the end of the Reagan years about who would be Reagan's heir. And um, it seems to me it turns out that that wasn't a person. Mm-hmm. It was a thing. It was the conservative structure. And that was built up over time. But it was already pretty large by the end of Reagan's presidency. Um, the think tanks, the journalists, Washington Times had been created. But over the 90s, it grew even larger. And the most important part was, of course, the establishment of Fox News. And when that happened, that that was Fox and talk radio were became the centers of conservative power. Um, and, and so the talk radio was, has been hostile to a lot of conservative politicians or, or rather a lot of Republicans. Um, if they're not, if they're not going a certain way, you know, um, so that'd be the only way I, I change it. The, stru- no, no, the structure, I, I, I think, Trump and I would say that right now it's it's Republicans to hell with Republicans. I think right now the most important thing is to keep Trump president. Right. That's the most important thing I think on the right. 
No, I, I think that's right. And I think it's sort of the the end stage of this process that I'm kind of talking about because sort of what are, you know, it, it, I was trying to avoid using the phrase conservatism Inc. because basically everybody uses it to describe their opponents in these fights. Yeah, you, you, you are conservative Inc. I get called conservatism Inc. And I think that like, you know, Matt Schlapp is conservatism Inc. And I think his bank account proves I'm right. Um, but um, uh, the the... But you're right, the sort of the conservative media industrial complex, it's an interesting way, but I never thought of it that way, is that that was the true inheritor of Reagan in a way, is interesting. The thing that bothers me about that is that, you know, the Reagan, Reagan wasn't the sort of caricature of Rush Limbaugh married to Heritage Foundation, married to CPAC, married to... Fox News Weekend, right, or whatever, whatever, whatever sort of. I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but the sort of the caricature of sort of what you're talking about, a sort of talk radio right conservatism. Um, if you actually go back and watch Reagan, you know, Reagan very rarely talked about, um, you know, very rarely demonized the other, right, and he very rarely talked about purity stuff. His whole point was. You know, the, George Schultz tells that great story about how he went in to talk to Reagan, uh, get his advice on a speech, and um, Schultz and Reagan reads the speech, says it's a good speech, it's a good speech. It's not the kind of speech I would give, but it's a good speech. And Schultz says, well, you know, how would you do it differently? And he says, well, look. And he takes out his big felt tip pen, and he says, okay, you make your point, make your point, make your point. Story, tell a story. Make your point, make your point, make your point tell a story, and. He does this throughout the entire speech. And you go back and you look at Reagan, the way he communicated with people was telling stories. And his, he tried to make the conservatism attractive to people who saw some mirror of themselves in it. And the change when you sort of industrialize conservatism to the stuff that you're talking about is that, and we saw this pre-Trump, and I think it's one of the reasons why we got Trump in sort of the 2012, 2008 to 2012 era, you have this increasing emphasis on purity and this idea that that um, conservatism is no longer about persuading people it's about finding the purest of the pure um, and that's something that you get when it stops being about politics and starts being about an industry or something yeah um, um I know I've kept you very long. You're free to respond to that at length if you like, but uh, we've got to wrap up soon. And I did want to get a, just a, a couple more eggheadery questions in. Okay, sure. Who, who is the conservative intellectual or intellectuals that you think get, for whatever reason, less fanfare than they deserve? Right? I mean, William F. Buckley. What has two thumbs and loves William F. Buckley? This guy, you could argue that he gets too much, right? You could argue that Friedrich Hayek gets too much. I mean, I, I wouldn't make these arguments, but fair-minded people could say they certainly don't lack for accolades in the history books. Um, who are the people who had serious influence, even just behind the scenes, like an Irving or whatever? Yeah. Irving gets his fair share of credit yeah. um, that normal people may not necessarily have heard of or have a great appreciation for. Uh, well, at top of my list is Frank Meyer. You know, yeah. it was a name I think that's largely forgotten, and but I believe um, it was a real tragedy to American conservatism when when Meyer died of cancer at uh, a relatively early age, um, in uh, 
1972. He was just reaching his 60s, I think. He was born in 1915. So, yeah, 57, I think, when he died. Uh, That was a huge tragedy. Um, Meyer was very doctrinal, a legacy of this communist past, but nonetheless, I think, did the most to kind of ground American conservatism in the American founding and in constitutionalism and reconciling the idea that, yes, these are liberal institutions, but they're a different liberalism, a liberalism that recognized the importance of virtue and also of non-liberal institutions like the family or the church. Um, And so he, you know, this was described as fusionism by his friend and critic, Brent Bozell. But um, I think that is also what, what it's what Meyer called the conservative mainstream. And that is what it, being a conservative is. Um, so Meyer, absolutely. You know, just coming to mind, um, one person who springs to mind is Neil Cosadoy, who uh, oh, was not a black was, was uh, Norman Pothorst's deputy for many years at Commentary and then took over from Norman Pothorst uh, when Pothorst retired in 1995 uh, and was editor until um, our friend and colleague John Pothorst took over in, in 08. My editor for my first two pieces in commentary. Yeah. Neil, um, I think, uh, is a tremendous intellect. Um, and he shaped, uh, you know, the, the, the joke, w- the long-running joke was, you know, I, I, I had my first piece in commentary. Um, Neil wrote every sentence, but I got one in, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. and you had to reach a certain point um, uh, where the editing uh, became lessened. At the same time, it was the best edited magazine in America for decades. And I think Kazidoy played a huge role in that. Um, so those would be kind of two that just, just, that just leap to mind. I mean, obviously I kind of feel like I'm running the, the book, the book I've written is really kind of an all-star, you know, an all-star game. Cause I'm trying to get in all the, all the major names and everything. Um, the ones that are, you know, it is, it's a shame to me. I mean, another conclusion I've reached is that conservatives are terrible at telling their history to themselves. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I just looked at, I just happened to cross, there's another Rick Perlstein history coming out of, uh, you know, <laughs> first, uh, I guess the, between 76 and 80 and liberals and the left are obsessed with conservative history. Right. But for whatever reason, and I can probably speculate on a few of them, the right is pays no attention at all. Um, and so I'm, you know, I might say, well, you and I might say, oh yeah, well, everyone gives Jim Wilson credit, you know, but Mm -hmm. the truth is if I went out and started talking to the young, young people, um, and maybe even a lot of people on the right adults, and I mentioned James Wilson, they wouldn't have any idea uh, who I'm talking about, you know, um, on the other hand, he was name dropped in a Jill Lepore essay in the New Yorker, you know? Um, so yeah, Wilson, um, it's funny. So, um, just as yeah. Toby Stock, who you know and is you know partner of mine here at the Dispatch, but for a long time he was a vice president of AI. He actually created a quiz <laughs> for the young hires at AI that they had to. First of all, just to test what they knew about AI, but also as a way to sort of have a die marker about what they needed to be taught, and like who was James Q. Wilson? What article was he famous for? you know, all of that kind of stuff. And um, I think you're right. It's, you get a lot of um, really smart kids from Ivy League schools and other places. And I'm, I, I, I hope the intern, Valerie, who's listening to this podcast right now, um, 
it doesn't feel like I'm talking about her, but there are um, now that you uh, checked her, yeah. But there are there are, there are, there are an enormous number of people who say that they're conservatives, but are just not interested in where the movement comes from and and what it is. And in part because I think they're just sort of attracted to Republican politics, and they think that this is one of the avenues to get in. Yeah, um, I, I hope we start doing a better job of teaching underappreciated intellectuals. Another um, uh, might not seem this way, but I think Charles Kessler actually his role uh-huh. has been underappreciated um, as someone who, who did a lot of the legwork in bringing uh, Harry Joffa's thought into that conservative mainstream uh, I described. Uh, and, you know, and I thought it was very interesting to me to, to uh, and I talk about this, but if you, Buckley edited two anthologies of conservative thought in his life. Mm-hmm. The first one he did himself. And then the second one, he brought in Charles, as his was it have you ever seen a dream walking and, one, and yeah. keeping the tablet it's the second one right yeah and so Kessler was brought in to help him on um keeping the tablets and you can see um the difference in the Jaffa selections I know I'm going very Straussian here but, uh-huh. um the first one uh Buckley chose uh, a Jaffa essay on civil and religious liberty I believe is the title of the essay and the second one uh and for keeping the tablets, they inserted equality as a conservative principle, which was uh-huh. this main attack actually on people like Wilmer Kendall and Frank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that I think was very influential in creating a right in the, in the Reagan years and up until, up until Trump, uh, that was very invested in this idea that the right is protecting the Lincoln's proposition, you know? Uh-huh. And, um, and so Charles done it, I think very interesting to, uh, to appreciate his career. So if you had to do a, if you had to recommend a primer on conservatism until your book comes out, yeah. <laughs> uh, either, you know, an anthology or, um, yeah. or a, just a single, what is conservatism kind of book? What, what, what books would you recommend? Uh, well, there is, what is conservatism? Uh, there is, there is. Uh, I believe, uh, you, uh, penned an introduction to the revised, uh, edition. Um, they they come out with new versions reprints of that like every five to seven yeah, years. Right. It's, it's, a, um, it's, it's a good book. It's an interesting glimpse into that um, that uh, anti-statist, anti-communist right I talked about. Obviously, you and I go on at length uh, about George and Ash's history. Though I find uh, for young people that might be um, intimidating. I assigned it in a college course this year, and um, people were kind of flustered by all the details. Um, uh-huh. You know. Um, Damn kids. Yeah. I, someone asked me about Reagan book the other day and it's actually, it's funny what I'm going to say, but I think the best short biography of Reagan is by Dinesh D'Souza. It came out in 1997 and D'Souza too is as someone writing this book, um, an underappreciated figure in the development of the right. Um, and, Following his trajectory, I think, is very revealing of what of the different types of rights that have uh, come out in the last 40 years and such. But, but his book on Reagan is a very good introduction. Um, you know, the, the way maybe to get into it, I found uh, for, for the work in the, these past weeks, um, I reread Bob Novak's memoir, uh, Prince of Darkness. I recommend this book to anyone anyone interested in journalism and politics for the last half century, um, because you get 
Bob started working for the Wall Street Journal in the 1950s. And so, and even then it was pretty prominent um, and, and had great sources. You get a glimpse of national politics, of how Washington works, of the conservative movement, because he was involved in a lot of these debates. I mean, memoirs might be the way to get in, involved, involved in, in some of these debates and, and, and learning about some of these figures. I think that's the, the way to go. So, yeah, it's funny. You mentioned now Dinesh is a, his trajectory, which is a very devil, delicate and diplomatic way of referring to it, um, given that... I'm an objective historian. I understand that. Uh, I, I, I find, you know, I, I, I used to play ping pong with Dinesh in the early 1990s at AEI. Um, uh, and I, I find some of what has happened to him to be pretty depressing. But it reminds me, when you brought up Bob Novak, I think it's in one of the one of the original sort of who are the conservatives New York Times profile things. You know, they did these every two years where they, right. you know, I think it's the one with Laura Ingram in the leopard print skirt, but I, I can't be sure. I, uh, but there's a story where she goes to Novak and asks for career advice. And he says, well, I started out covering city council meetings and blah, 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 blah. And then I worked my way up to this desk. And then I went to that and then I got this job and whatever. And her basic response, at least the way I remember in the story, was, yeah, that's too hard. I just want to get on TV. <laughs> and, um, or that takes too much time, right? And I think that, you know, I mean, take Laura out of it, that phenomenon of people who want to, um, you know, what's her name, the blonde? I know I need to be more specific. Um, who's sort of a YouTuber. Um, gosh, there's so many of them. Um, yeah. I you know, like comfortably smart. I think she's awesome. Wants her to run for president. Um, uh, you know, you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's driving me friggin' crazy. Um, anyway, there are these young people who just want to be fully formed, you know, it's sort of like get out of the Orkian egg. Um, and, uh, be fully formed TV pundits um, without paying a lot of dues. And if you go back and you look at the really famous pundits from my childhood in teen years, um, Pat Buchanan, Bob Novak, William F. Buckley, um, even Fred Barnes, Morkin Drackey, all those kinds of guys, they have these rich sort of journalistic backgrounds to them. Um, and a lot of the younger people, not all of them, but a lot of them, are, they're just reading lines in a way. I mean, they're, they're, they're just coming to it because they're telegenic and they're, they're playing a part rather than actually having a narrative about how they got to where they are and all the rest. But yeah, anyway. I mean, those guys uh, were, you know, steeped in Washington journalism and in po politics and public policy. Um, the, the, they don't really fit in, in a world dominated by culture war, you know? Um, now, since everything that we debate has very little to do with public policy, it has to do about where you're, you know, where, where you stand on, on questions of morality and identity and race and gender, uh, you know, 
the bar is very low to, to, to voice an opinion on those subjects. You just need to have a identity or a race or a gender. So, so it's a different kind of game. I don't think the guys that you talk about who are my heroes as well, I don't, I don't think they would function very well in this environment. I've, I've, I've actually spent, having read Prince of Darkness now for the third time or something, I've been spending a few days, a, a little bit of time just in recent days thinking about how Bob would be covering Washington today. Um, yeah. I think he would be disgusted. I mean, yeah. it's everybody, you know? <laughs> and so it's, um, it's hard. It's a very, like I say, the, the right has changed. Washington has changed. Media has changed in, in ways that favor, um, uh, discourse and, um, uh, and, and behavior that uh, just are not, not what you and I were kind of brought up in basically. Um, the person I was trying to remember was Tommy Lawrence. Yeah, I thought just, it might be it, but again, when yeah. you say YouTube, I'm I yeah, no, I know. I mean, I, I don't even know if it's yeah, her fame on the internet, her, right? Yeah. yeah, something like that. Um, all right, my friend, thank you very much for doing this, and thank you for indulging me in all of this weirdness. We will obviously, if not before, but certainly when your book comes out, we will do a deep dive into all of this stuff. I will have notes, um, and. Uh, um, I'm really looking forward to it. I am, I am, I'm literally one of the dozens who is <laughs> truly fired up about it. Cause we, you're absolutely right. We have bad storytellers and we are, uh, we uh, all praise and honor to George Nash, but it's time for a, a new telling. And, and, and it, I can, I can, I can vouch for listeners right now that, um, unlike a lot of people who write about conservatism. Matt's been doing his homework on this for a very long time. And um, I asked him a question about something a couple months ago at the office. And, um, and he said, well, it's interesting. Wilmer Kendall wrote a really interesting letter about that to Leo Strauss. I was like, all right. So he's, he's been in the weeds. <laughs> um, so uh, thanks again for doing this. Anytime. And um, hope to have you back soon. Okay, so uh, thanks to the miracles of audio engineering, um, I am re-recording this outro because we lost the audio for it originally when uh, Matt Continetti uh, signed off before. I want to thank Matt uh, for coming on and talking about all that stuff, and I hope I was right that at least some people stuck around until the end to, um, to really just soak, like in those old Palmolive ads, in the uh, conservative nerdery. Um, and uh, please go to the dispatch, dispatch.com, sign up for our wares, do all that stuff. Uh, check out Dispatch Live this week. I think it's Thursday night. And, um, and we thank you guys so much for the support. There's a lot of changes going on in media. A lot of people are sort of borrowing from some of our model. That's great. Um, but we still need you guys to help us out and um, grow this thing uh, to the extent that, 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 you know, we need you to. And we're really grateful to everybody. I'm sorry if I sound exhausted. It's only because I am. And I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Sure.